Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, your host, Jeremy Walker. I'm the pastor of a church in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of England, and I'm an appreciator of Charles Spurgeon, and it's my privilege to guide you through some of the sermons that he preached and published during his lifetime and afterwards, if the Lord spares us that long and keeps giving us these opportunities. The sermon we're looking at today is Sermon 844 in the sequence, and the title is Justification by Faith, illustrated from the life of Abraham. It's, as I said, Sermon 844. Our weekly reading covers 843 to 849. And if you want to follow along with that, you can do so at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. And if you want the other information, find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Then next week, you can join us for Sermon 850 through to 856. And on that occasion, our featured sermon is 854 as we break into the next volume, volume 15, on fire, the want of the times. But for this week, justification by faith, illustrated by Abraham's righteousness. Now, Spurgeon has a reputation for preaching from single texts, even phrases in particular verses. That's his uh, inclination, it's his uh, instinct, I think, as a preacher for for various reasons, both personally and circumstantially and historically. What's fascinating is how uh, Spurgeon is not what some today dismiss as a, a topical preacher. He's genuinely textual exegetical, as we've seen a few times in recent weeks. He's careful in handling his text in its context, even though he sometimes then takes steps uh, that perhaps other preachers today, or even in his own time, might not have done. But the, the norm for Spurgeon is to zero in on that text or that phrase, and then to unpick it, to unpack it. Now, There are many collections of Spurgeon's sermons or addresses that have some kind of uh, linking theme or connection. Sometimes it's a book like Lectures to My Students, which are delivered to his college students. There are other sermon collections. Uh, You may have some on your bookshelf, as I do, that are uh, arranged in terms of their uh, their target audience, as it were, sermons to the young, for example, or the, the particular theme that runs through them. Uh, sermons on the atonement or sermons to men or sermons to women or or whatever it may be. But it's usual that Spurgeon's sermons stand alone. That's not the case with today's sermon. It's justification by faith and the sermon that was preached, one of the sermons that was preached the week before, also included in this volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, was on effectual calling. And that was illustrated also from the life of Abraham. Now, the following Lord's Day, again, a sermon included in this volume, is on consecration, again, from Abraham's experience. Then what's actually quite interesting is that the following year, he preaches a sermon on mature faith, also drawn from the life of Abraham, in which he refers back to these sermons and says, you'll remember that we've done this before. So it's quite unusual that we have here this sequence of sermons. First of all, three Sunday by Sunday, followed by another a few months later, 
picking up on on another aspect of Abraham's life and experience. That makes this quite distinctive in its own right, and it shows us at least something of Spurgeon's versatility as a preacher. What it also shows in each of these sermons, and we're just choosing, if you like, one representative one of these slightly unusual sermons, is how Spurgeon is willing to make Abraham's faith and life a model for ours. He brings the experience of the patriarch to bear upon us. Uh, And he does that in in various ways, both in terms of, if you like, a more uh, absolute or doctrinal sense. What is this faith that Abraham had and how does it relate to the faith which we have? But also to draw out of the the life which Abraham lived experience for ourselves. So, This one is from Genesis 15 and verse 6. It was preached on the Sunday morning of the 6th of December, 1868, uh, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the text is Genesis 15 and verse 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he mentions in his introduction, you'll remember that last Lord's Day morning we spoke upon the calling of Abraham and the faith by which he was enabled to enter upon that separated life at the bidding of the Most High. Today we pass from the consideration of his calling to that of his justification, that being most remarkably next in order in his history, as it is in point of theology in the New Testament, for whom he called, them he also justified. So there's another layer in terms of the connection, that Spurgeon is is preaching not just a, a an historical series, but a doctrinal series, echoing that language from Romans 8, in which he's tracing out God's dealings with his people from the life of Abraham. So, being called to separate himself from his kindred, his family, from his country, he did not therefore become a recluse, a man of ascetic habits or a sentimentalist unfit for the battles of ordinary life. No, but in the noblest style of true manliness, Abraham showed himself able to endure the household trouble and the public trial which awaited him. So he has this uh, argument with with Lot and then he has to uh, go and deal with the the capture of Lot once he's gone up to to Sodom. Spurgeon wants us to understand that this everyday life faith is the faith of God's elect, that Abraham now enters into a life of faith. There are persons, he says, who imagine saving faith to be a barren conviction of the truth of certain abstract propositions, leading only to a quiet contemplation upon certain delightful topics, or a separating ourselves from all sympathy with our fellow creatures. But it is not so. Faith, restricted merely to religious exercise, is not Christian faith. It must show itself in everything. So here you've got a splash of the letter to James that uh, our faith shows itself by our works. A merely religious faith, says Spurgeon, may be the choice of men whose heads are softer than their hearts, fitter for cloisters than markets. But the manly faith which God would have us cultivate is a grand practical principle adapted for every day in the week, helping us to rule our household in the fear of God and to enter upon life's rough conflicts in the warehouse, the farm, or the exchange. So this then is the the faith of Abraham and the impact that it has on his life. And the first verse shows us that even such a believer as Abraham needed comfort. Cowards, says Spurgeon, tremble before the fight, brave men after the victory. 
Abraham was afraid and he needed the Lord to tell him not to be afraid. He he needed that, that encouragement and it was afterwards that he has this trouble of spirit. And, and Spurgeon talks about the way that this is fairly typical. Uh, uh, happened to uh, Elijah. Uh, Abraham's fear is not unlike that of, of John and he has to be told again, fear not. Should not a man, ask Spurgeon, conscious of great infirmities, sink low in his own esteem in proportion as he's honoured with communion with the glorious Lord? And so, having been comforted, and here again is Spurgeon putting this text in its context, even as he's got this, this bigger doctrinal sequence in mind. But once he's been comforted, Abraham received an open declaration of his justification. Now I take it, beloved friends, says our preacher, that our text does not intend to teach us that Abraham was not justified before this time. Faith always justifies whenever it exists and as soon as it is exercised. Its result follows immediately and it is not an aftergrowth needing months of delay. The moment a man truly trusts his God, he is justified. Yet many are justified who do not know their happy condition to whom as yet the blessing of justification has not been opened up in its excellency and abundance of privilege. So the point he's making here, and he's diving into the experience now of God's people, is that it's very important for us to understand that you have this standing with God on the basis of faith in Christ the very moment that you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And that's of vital importance. However, What we also need to grasp is that sometimes, though we are already justified by faith, we may not be aware of our status. There may be a a gap between our grasp of Christ and our grasp of the fact that we have grasped Christ. But there will come a time, says Spurgeon, when you who are called will clearly realise your justification and will rejoice in it. In other words, you should be closing that gap and God in his mercy will close that gap between your faith in Christ and your consciousness of having been justified. Not that you are not justified, but you may not be aware of it. It shall be intelligently understood by you and shall become a matter of transporting delight, lifting you to a higher platform of experience and enabling you to walk with a firmer step, sing with a merrier voice, and triumph with an enlarged heart. And so, having laid that foundation, Spurgeon is going to note the means of Abraham's justification, then the object of the faith which justified him, and then thirdly, the attendance of his justification, that is, the things that went along with it. So first of all, how was Abraham justified? Abraham was not justified by his works. He had many good works, but that was not the basis of his being declared righteous in the sight of God. Surely, brethren, if Abraham, after years of holy living, is not justified by his works, but is accepted before God on account of his faith, asks the preacher, much more must this be the case with the ungodly sinner who, having lived in unrighteousness, yet believes on Jesus and is saved. If there's salvation for the dying thief and others like him, it cannot be of debt but of grace, seeing that they have no good works. Abraham believed in the Lord. That's Spurgeon's point. 
And if it was by faith that a worker like Abraham was justified, then what makes us imagine that anyone else is going to be justified by his works or apart from faith? If Abraham, when full of good works, is not justified by them, but by his faith, how much more we, being full of imperfections, must come unto the throne of heavenly grace and ask that we may be justified by faith which is in Christ Jesus and saved by the free mercy of God. Then Abraham. Then Spurgeon points out that Abraham was not justified by obedience to the ceremonial law any more than by conformity to the moral law. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, as Paul emphasizes in the letter to the Romans. Spurgeon again brings it straight up to uh, to date. Listen to this carefully, you who would be justified before God. Baptism in is in itself an excellent ordinance, but it cannot justify nor help to justify us. Confirmation is a mere figment of men and could not, even if commanded by God, assist in justification. And the Lord's Supper, even though that's a divine institution, cannot in any respect whatsoever minister to your acceptance or to your righteousness before God. We need to remember once again that Spurgeon is dealing in a context in which a a rise in ritualism and ceremonialism, especially in the Anglican Church, was uh, characteristic. And he's trying to address that, not just in Anglicanism, but also in uh, in dissent, in non-conformity that sacred ritual or superstitious ritual, these things in themselves are not the basis upon which we stand accepted with God. What did Abraham do? He believed the promise. That was all. It was before he had offered sacrifice, before he'd said a holy word or performed a single action of any kind, that the word immediately and instanter went forth. He believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Always distinguish between the truth, says Spurgeon, that living faith always produces works and the lie that faith and works cooperate to justify the soul. We are made righteous only by an act of faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Then again, he wants us to understand that the faith which justified Abraham was still an imperfect faith, even though by it, Abraham was perfectly justified. And Spurgeon demonstrates from the the history how that was the case. It's a blessing then for you and for me, he says, that we do not need perfect faith to save us. Though thy faith be not always at the same pitch as the patriarchs when he staggered not at the promise through unbelief, yet if it be simple and true, if it confide alone in the promise of God, it is an unhappy thing that it is no stronger, and thou oughtst daily to pray, Lord, increase my faith but still it shall justify thee through Christ Jesus. So we don't celebrate the weakness of our faith. We're not hoping to remain weak in faith. We want our faith to be substantial and strong. But it is not our faith which saves us. It is Christ who saves by faith. And the weakest faith that lays hold upon Christ truly is as much a faith by which a man is justified as the the strongest and purest and clearest of faith. So far then, says our preacher, all is clear. Abraham was not justified by works, nor by ceremonies, nor partly by works and partly by faith, nor by the perfection of his faith. He is counted righteous simply 
because of his faith in the divine promise. And that's a a really quite comprehensively orthodox statement about what justification by faith means and and does not mean. Spurgeon's done it by way of this, this narrative, this history, to bring it simply and clearly before us. It's a good example of, so if we make a distinction here, uh, a sermon can be illustrated from the historical or narrative portions of the scripture, and that's that's great, and it's it's helpful, and it's it keeps things lively and accessible. Spurgeon's almost gone a step forward here, and not just preaching the doctrine with occasional illustrations. He's made the very illustration the substance by which the doctrine is communicated. Again, it shows his his versatility and his liveliness as a preacher. Now he says, uh, he's got a couple of uh, additional comments before he gets to his second point. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the, to, the, to the end of my capacity here. One thing is clear to me, that if faith be, as we are told, counted to us for righteousness, it is not because faith in itself has merit, which may make it fitting make it a fitting substitute for a perfect obedience to the law of God, nor can it be viewed as a substitute for such obedience. So he says, I'm not trying to enter into all the controversies that are raging around this text, but you do need to understand that faith itself is not a work. Faith is not a work. Faith is not just the work by which we're justified as opposed to all the other works. No, faith receives what God offers. All good acts are a duty, he says. To trust God is our duty, and he who has believed to his utmost has done no more than it was his duty to have done. He who should believe without imperfection, if this were possible, would even then have only given to God a part of the obedience due. And if he should have failed in love or reverence or anything beside, his faith as a virtue and a work could not stand him in any stead. In fact, According to the great principle of the New Testament, this is Spurgeon now, faith as a work does not justify the soul. We are not saved by works at all or in any sense, but alone by grace. And the way in which faith saves us is not by itself as a work, but in some other way directly opposite thereto. So, faith then cannot be its own righteousness, for it is of the very nature of faith to look out of self to Christ. You see how jealous the preacher is of the the honor of Jesus Christ even in speaking of the faith which looks to him. Faith is not our righteousness. Our righteousness is in Christ. Faith justifies but not in and by itself, but because it grasps the obedience of Christ. He's trying not to enter into controversy with regard to imputed righteousness, but he wants us to be confident that this text cannot mean that faith in itself becomes the righteousness of any man. Faith is counted to us for righteousness because she has Christ in her hand. So he's trying to make sure that we we don't misunderstand or misapply these words. Faith comes to God resting upon what Christ has done, depending alone upon the propitiation which God has set forth, and God therefore writes down every believing man as being a righteous man, not because of what he is in himself, but for what he is in Christ. He goes on, while there may be some who gloat over the faults of believers, God spies out the pure gem of faith gleaming on their breast. 
He takes them for what they want to be, for what they are in heart, for what they would be if they could, and covering their sins with the atoning blood and adorning their persons with the righteousness of the Beloved, he accepts them, seeing he beholds in them the faith which is the mark of the righteous man, wherever it may be. So you've got this uh, really interesting uh, variety then again, this but still a consistency in approach. You've got accurate doctrine. You've got the underlying illustration of Abraham's faith. You've got uh, a, uh, Spurgeon now insisting upon the fact that uh, we need to understand this text correctly, and he's making sure that he clears away any muck, even though that's not the, the main point of this sermon. He wants to make sure that he removes any possibility of confusion from those who are hearing him. And again, that's good pastoral preaching. So, the second point, the promise upon which Abraham's faith relied. Abraham's faith, like ours, rested upon a promise received direct from God. This shall not be your heir, this Ishmael, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now unto heaven, uh, toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So, it's a very simple remark to make, but after all it is needful, says Spurgeon, that we must be careful that our true faith in the truth is fixed upon the fact that God has declared it to be true and not upon the oratory or persuasion of any of our most honoured ministers or most respected acquaintances. God spoke to Abraham and Abraham believed it because God had spoken. So it's not the eloquence of the preacher, it's not even the preacher's reputation, although that is not insignificant in you being confident that God is speaking through him. But if your faith stands in the wisdom of man, it's probably a faith in man. It is only that faith which believes the promise because God spoke it, which is real faith in God. And that again is is a good thing for us to remember in a day when celebrity culture has so infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. Do you believe because your favorite preacher has spoken? Do you believe because some powerful orator has declared it? Do you believe because the man that you follow from conference to conference has, has made it his life's business to emphasize some point? Or do you believe because God has spoken? The same needs to be true even in a, a small congregation with a, with a labouring under-shepherd of the sheep. It's not even him and his credibility and his affection that gives us confidence. It is because he is preaching from the word of God. And so it is not the, the man himself upon whom we rely. It is not the vessel, not the instrument, but God himself whose word is our confidence. So, Abraham believes a promise that God has spoken himself. And then it's faith in a promise concerning the seed. He knows already that God has made a promise to Eve concerning the, the seed of the woman. And now Abraham sees the one seed. And he seems to see Christ by the eye of faith and the multitude that should believe in him, the seed of the father of the faithful. Spurgeon here shows himself uh, one of those Baptists who believe in the dichotomous nature of the Abrahamic covenant, that is, that, that it's fulfilled on more than one level. It's got these, these two branches, a, a physical and a spiritual. 
The faith which justifies the soul concerns itself about Christ and not concerning mere abstract truths. If your faith simply believes this dogma and that, it saves you not. But when your faith believes that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses, when your faith turns to God in human flesh and rests in him with its entire confidence, then it justifies you, for it is the faith of Abraham. Dear hearer, have you such a faith as this? And then Abraham had faith in a promise which it seemed impossible could ever be fulfilled, this birth of a child from his own body, as if dead, and that of his aged and barren wife. It seems impossible, says someone, that I should ever be saved. I cannot save myself. I see absolute death written upon the best hopes that spring of my holiest resolutions. In me, that is, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I can do nothing. I'm slain under the law. I'm corrupt through my natural depravity. There's an impossibility, humanly speaking. But yet, Like Abraham's confidence in what seemed impossible with him, I believe that through the life of Jesus I shall live and inherit the promised blessing. It's a small faith to believe that God will save you when graces flourish in your heart and evidences of salvation abound, but it's a grand faith to trust in Jesus in the teeth of all your sins and notwithstanding the accusations of conscience. To believe not in the Saviour of saints, but in the Saviour of sinners, and to believe that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is precious, and is counted unto us for righteousness. So again you see how in each of these cases, Spurgeon's going from Abraham's faith, and how it responds to what God is saying or doing and then takes that step and he says, you have the same faith as Abraham if you are being justified because of your relationship to Jesus Christ. And then this justifying faith was faith which dealt with a wonderful promise, vast and sublime. Looking up to the stars, innumerable, so shall your seed be. The greater the grace of the promise, the more likely it is to have come from God, for good and perfect gifts come from him. And here's the step again. Beloved, does your faith take the promise as it stands in its vastness, in its height and depth and length and breadth? Can you believe that you, a sinner, are nevertheless a child, a son, an heir, an heir of God, joint heir with Christ Jesus? Can you believe that heaven is yours with all its ecstasies of joy, eternity with its infinity of bliss, God with all his attributes of glory? Oh, this is the faith that justifies, far-reaching, wide-grasping faith that diminishes not the word of promise, but accepts it as it stands. May we have more and more of this large-handed faith. And then, individualizing it, Abraham showed faith in the promise as made to himself. Ah, says Spurgeon, I can believe all the promises in regard to other people. I find faith in regard to my dear friend to be a very easy matter. But oh, when it comes to close grips and to laying hold for yourself, here is the difficulty. Is it so then, he asks? Can it be? Here's the point. I made righteous. Can we believe this promise as made to ourselves? Can I be made righteous with God through my faith in Christ Jesus, perfectly righteous, Oh, can it be? What? 
For me, the everlasting love of God, streaming from its perennial fountain. For me, the protection of a special providence in this life and the provision of a prepared heaven in the life to come. For me, a harp, a crown, a palm branch, a throne. For me, the bliss of forever beholding the face of Jesus and being made like to him and reigning with him. It seems impossible. And yet, this is the faith that we must have, the faith which lays on Christ Jesus for himself, for itself, saying with the apostle, he loved me and gave himself for me. This is the faith which justifies. Let us seek more and more of it, and God shall have glory through it. And then uh, we need to press on with, with Spurgeon, the third place, the attendance of Abraham's justification. With your Bibles open, says Spurgeon, will you look that after it's written, his faith was counted to him for righteousness. It is recorded that the Lord said to him, I am Jehovah who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. When the soul is graciously enabled to perceive its complete justification by faith, then it more distinctly discerns its calling. Again, notice the step from Abraham's experience considered in itself to ours. There's a parallel here and Spurgeon wants to draw it. The more clear a man is about his justification, the more will he prize his calling and the more earnestly will he seek to make it sure by perfecting his separation from the world and his conformity to his Lord. Then justifying faith receives more vividly the promises. I've brought you into the land to inherit it. He was reminded of the promise God had made to him. Beloved, says Spurgeon, no man reads the promises of God with such delight and with such a clear understanding as the man who is justified by faith in Christ Jesus. There's an assurance here. There's a, a happiness, a certainty and a stability. If when I was a rebel condemned, God nevertheless in his eternal mercy called me and brought me into this state of acceptance, much more will he preserve me from all my enemies and give me the heritage which he has promised by his covenant of grace. And then Abraham was led more distinctly to behold the power of sacrifice. And again, Spurgeon's rooting this in the context of the chapter where Abraham makes that sacrifice and then God draws near and he covenants with Abraham. The purest and most bracing air for faith to breathe is on Calvary. I do not wonder that your faith grows weak when you fail to consider well the tremendous sacrifice which Jesus made for his people. So Abraham realized the value and the power of sacrifice, so does the justified believer today. It is not the study of theology. It's not reading books upon points of controversy. It's not searching into mysterious prophecy which will bless your soul. It is looking to Jesus crucified. That is the essential nutriment of the life of faith and mind that you keep to it. See, a justified man doesn't outgrow the sacrifice of Christ. A justified man dives ever deeper into the sacrifice of Christ. So must you also study the Lord Jesus, says Spurgeon, and view him in all his characters and offices. Be not satisfied, except you grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So here's Spurgeon, really uh, theologically profound, uh, experimentally clear. The next, and even more important perhaps, he says, the next lesson that Abraham was led to behold the covenant, the covenant that God made. He 
he goes again back to that sacrifice where uh, by these emblems, the Lord passing between the pieces entered into covenant with Abraham. This has always been the most solemn of all modes of covenanting, where the sacrifice is divided and the covenanting parties meet between the divided pieces. And so it is only in the midst of the sacrifice that God can enter into a covenant relationship with sinful man. God comes in his glory like a flame of fire, but subdued and tempered to us as with a cloud of smoke in the person of Jesus Christ. And he comes through the bloody sacrifice, which has been offered once for all through Jesus Christ on the tree. Man meets with God in the midst of the sacrifice of Christ. You see again Spurgeon's willingness. Now, let me finish the sentence. Spurgeon's willingness to make that jump between Abraham's experience and ours. Now, there are some who might say this is an illegitimate leap. There are others who would say, but he hasn't shown his working, as it were. He hasn't laid the foundation. I think he's, I think he's preaching. Again, you might say that there's scope for greater theological instruction and illumination here. But Spurgeon is trying constantly to drive at the hearts of the people to whom he's preaching. The leap is legitimate. He may not have shown you uh, all the, the steps by which he runs up to take the jump, but the jump itself lands on a solid point. Man is sometimes faithful to his oath, then he says, but God is always so. And when that oath is confirmed for the strengthening of our faith by the blood of the only begotten, to doubt is treason and blasphemy. God help us being justified to have faith in the covenant which is sealed and ratified with blood. The end's in sight. Immediately after God made to Abraham, and here the analogy still holds, you know, Spurgeon's conscious that this is analogical reasoning and preaching, a discovery that all the blessing that was promised, though it was surely his, would not come without an interval of trouble. How often does it happen that the Lord, in order to educate his child for future trouble, makes the occasion when his justification is most clear to him, the season of informing him that he may expect to meet with trouble? When you enter into this relationship with God, when you come to this point of sweet assurance, that is when God himself may remind you that there is going to be a cross before the crown, that to use the preacher's language here, all the saints must smart before they sing. They, they must carry the cross before they wear the crown. You're a justified man, but not freed from trouble. Your sins were laid on Christ, but you still have Christ's cross to carry. The Lord's exempted you from the curse, but he has not exempted you from the chastisement. Learn that you enter on the children's discipline on the very day in which you enter upon their accepted condition. And then to close the whole, the Lord gave to Abraham an assurance of ultimate success. He would bring his seed into the promised land and the people who depressed them he would judge. So let it come as a sweet revelation to every believing man this morning that at the end he shall triumph and those evils which now oppress him shall be cast beneath his feet. The Lord shall bruise Satan under our feet shortly. We may be slaves in Egypt a while, but we'll come up out of it with great abundance of true riches, better than silver or gold. And so, have you believed in God? Here's this wonderful conclusion. Have you trusted Christ? Oh, that you would do so today. 
to believe that God speaks truth ought not to be hard, and if we were not very wicked, this would never need to be urged upon us, we should do it naturally. To believe that Christ is able to save us seems to me to be easy enough, and it would be if our hearts were not so hard. Believe thy God, man, and think it no little thing to do so. May the Holy Ghost lead thee to a true trust. This is the work of God, that ye believe on Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. Believe that the Son of God can save, and confide thyself alone in him, and he will save thee. He asks nothing but faith, and even this he gives thee. And if thou hast it, all thy doubts and sins, thy trials and troubles put together, shall not shut thee out of heaven. God shall fulfil his promise, and surely bring thee in to possess the land which floweth with milk and honey. And there we must close, being out of time as Spurgeon himself seems to be on this occasion, and trusting that this will be a blessing to all who hear. Hope to see you again next time. God bless.